Welcome to the Fitness in Color podcast, where we follow and highlight the experiences of people of color in the wellness and fitness industry, telling their stories in their own words. If I've always navigated these spaces my whole entire life, where I've had to like minimize who I was, where I had to negotiate my identities based upon who I was in proximity to, then I'm always constantly like not being authentic to who I am and shrinking myself just to be able to fit in, in some cases, just to survive. Rebecca, thank you for joining me. Welcome to Fitness and Color. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, a little excited. And like I said to you before we started recording, a little nervous too as well. Um, <laughs> I'm not used to always like talking about myself and my work. So like this. Well, <laughs> I think you should just be yourself. We've had a couple, you know, we've had a couple conversations. Yeah. We met on Clubhouse, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty dope platform if you know how to use it. I'm sure there are other, you know, other people in there doing other different things. But um, when we first met on Clubhouse, I remember we I hosted a room with one of the captains on my running team, Elise, who's a mental health advocate and social worker. And you had come up on stage. I can't exactly remember the reason why I wanted to talk to you more, mm-hmm. but it had to have it had to do with what you were saying and how you were speaking. And you have such a calming voice. And Clubhouse is just an audio platform. Right. And so I was like, all right, I need to find this woman. A, because she seems really dope. B, she has such a calming voice. I want her. Um, I would love to have her host some rooms on podcast on uh, on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And then when I found you on Instagram, I'm like, oh wow, like yes, let me get you on my podcast too. So thank you for agreeing to talk with a total stranger and then um, agreeing to come on the show. Thank you, thank you. And and I, I just want to say, just take a moment to just even just thank you for like you know taking the opportunity to create the space that you've managed to create on Clubhouse with regards to fitness and color and. The importance of it and i think that as we probably continue the conversation that we're going to have you know it's really relevant especially during these times so it was really nice to be able to navigate club clubhouse because not every room on clubhouse is the room right um right. as we both know so it's really nice to be able to find spaces that you know are like safe containers for people to be able to just be and have really interesting conversations about ways we, we can all show up so i want to just throw that yeah. out there right now <laughs> Thank you. I, I think I could do a better job managing and creating more, but uh, I, I, that's why I want people like you who can help manage the because we've created it. Now we have to use it. Right. Um, and so I'm doing a really jo- bad job using it, but I'm sure we'll get better at it. Okay, cool. So tell the folks what you're doing now and where you are. What do you do for a living? Well, I live in Toronto, Canada, and I am a, if we go by like my Instagram profile, which would probably be the one because it's the, but I am a community builder, yoga teacher, yoga meditation teacher, and a well, like a diversity and wellness advocate. So like I really try to advocate for creating safe spaces and that representation and having conversations about diversity and equity in fitness and in wellness. I also am a Nike trainer. I'm actually the first black woman in Canada to become a Nike trainer, which is kind of cool. And I am a mother, which I really bear that honor and that badge very, very strongly. (laughs) So if you manage to find your way to my page, I have really interesting conversations about all the ways that those things intersect in my life. And I do, I I have seen it on your page and I really love the way that you're authentic about it. And it's, it's more about providing value and clarity versus like, ooh, look at me. Yeah. I just feel like that's a really interesting platform for us to be able to utilize. I've always been about having authentic conversations. I've always been about being transparent and real because I also think that that's a really good starting point for not just conversation, but ways that we can initiate and transform things, right? And so I think that especially because that platform and essentially like on some level society in general is really curated. It's really nice just to be authentic and show up as yourself, especially when we're talking about really important subjects like racism and, you know, diversity and equity and like all those other things in between. Like it's really important for us to really be authentic um, and have like real honest conversations and real conversations, which we don't necessarily see a lot of like nowadays. 
Yeah, agreed. We had had a pre-call uh, before, and I had asked you how long you've been in practicing yoga. Yeah. And was it like 10, how many years? 10, 15 years? or 20 years, or? <laughs> 20 years yeah. of practicing yoga. Yeah. So, which in my mind will make you an early adopter of yoga, mm-hmm. at least within the Black community. And so before even we get to that, I kind of want to go back to get to know Rebecca as a kid, as a child, growing up, family, kind of like your journey in sport and what led you to picking up yoga 20 years ago? Well, I am, well, my mom actually immigrated to Canada as a nanny. So like, that's how my experience, we moved to a province in Canada called Alberta. Um, Okay. Where'd you move from? From Jamaica. Okay, Jamaica. And so it's West Coast Canada. It was very white. My mom was a nanny. So it was a very interesting upbringing with regards to, you know, my mother was essentially taking care of somebody else's child, right? Mm-hmm. The family that she worked for was like a really cool family. And that kind of really helped shape my experiences. And I would have the opportunity to always go back and forth between here and Jamaica. Um, mm-hmm. So that also kind of like helped. How old were you when you when that happened? Like back and forth or coming? I came here very young. The- like, when my mom first immigrated, uh, she came on this like, like this great immigration wave that the government of Canada had like implemented, where they were accepting immigrants from the Caribbean, and a lot of them came over as domestics. My mom was just part of that group of people. Okay. She lived in England. She grew up in England. She was like a nurse, but you know, those qualifications didn't necessarily quantify her to be in that role when she came here. And she came here like every single other you know, immigrant who comes to like America or Canada or England or any of these places for a better life for her children and for yeah, herself. Exactly. And so, um, you know, I grew up out West and went back and forth between Canada and Jamaica. And it was a really interesting experience in terms of like allowing me to learn about a lot about myself and from a very early age, um, develop a strong sense of resilience and a strong sense of like, understanding of the importance of culture and community, um, especially when, you know, you're like one of a handful of like black families. I was pretty much the only black kid in my school for a very long time until my brother came along, right? And so that was really interesting in terms of helping shape that. One of the outlets that were was definitely there for me was uh, basketball, like I love sports. It was an easy way for me to kind of like connect with people, build camaraderie, feel like I was a part of something, especially when I grew up in spaces that kind of really excluded me, you know, just because I was a black girl and people just like didn't understand. So sport became an outlet for me. Sport and art, like those were my two get me by things throughout elementary school and definitely surviving high school. Um, Yeah. Definitely. And then I eventually moved from um, Alberta, we moved to like a place outside of Montreal called Tacbon. It's this in Quebec, and I learned how to speak French, so I'll never um, forget that. And then I ended up coming to Toronto because I just thought that it'd be a really cool place for me to land, and there were more people who looked like me, and it just seemed like a really accessible place for me to kind of like take it to the next level and to thrive and be. And I kind of have settled here for the time being and made it my home. Talk to me about your high school experience. Uh, Were you still one of a few Mm -hmm. black people? And then so were you like the basketball player? I was the only black girl in my high school. Oh, wow. In your high school? I was the only black girl in my high school. There was a couple of other black people. I think there was maybe three black people. My best friend, she's South Asian, so it was, we call it like the survival of the fittest. <laughs> we literally like had a calendar where we like X'd out the days until we were like graduated. She had plans of going to Pakistan and um, going back to Pakistan where her parents came from and becoming a doctor, which she is. And she's actually a successful doc- doctor out in Boston. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And I just wanted to get out of Toronto. I mean out of town like as quick as possible so yeah but yeah i was the only black girl in my high school 
which made for a very unique experience just because, you know, you encounter so many different things within that space of like trying to come of age and finding your identity and, you know, becoming aware of like the significance and the impact of like racism and calling in or calling out friends for like racist behavior and having people say like, yeah, but you're not like them. Like Those are those black people. You're not really black. Like really <laughs> trying to navigate this space of understanding black and what black meant and that's where I kind of like developed this understanding that there's no such thing as black in the sense of it being like a very static notion. Like all of us have our own stories. All of us have our own like intersectionalities um, and histories that we bring to the table. And that's what makes us who we are in terms of like our blackness and collective shared history. But then there's individual histories that kind of like add on to that. It was very traumatic at times. I've had like some really bad experiences. I'm grateful for every single one of them because like I said, I feel like it allowed me to become a very strong and resilient person and helps me understand how to have the conversations that I have right now in the spaces that I do. I'm thankful for that. Maybe at those times, not so much, <laughs> um, you know. But from, from what you could take from those experiences and use now for conversations. Yeah. I, for conversations and then just being able to, like, you know, when we're having conversations about, you know, like I said, like, for instance, my friends would say some pretty racist things about Black people. And I'd be like, hey, like, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm Black. And they would be like, but you're not like them. And I'd be like, but I'm Black. Like, I am. Right? So when you say something derogatory against somebody, regardless, like you're, you're buying into like these ideals around stereotypes and biases and things of that nature, right? And so that really prepared me for the conversations that I have today. And, you know, it made me a very strong person at a very early age, because it was a very difficult space to be able to like navigate and then trying to create your own identity and you know, I've had experiences where I had like a biology teacher in high school tell me like blacks were inferior and it was scientific fact. Wow. Um, I had a, a teacher in my English class, um, which I intentionally failed out of protest, asked me to bring in African music to set the tone of Africa because we were reading The Heart of Darkness. And not talk about like the impact of colonialism and how colonialism followed slavery, for instance. And she just wanted to prove a point that African people were cannibals, right? And like, you know, having like these really interesting conversations that me as a black person sitting in this space, hearing white people say things like, oh, they're cannibals and they eat each other and they're savages. Like, what does that do for me in terms of my psyche? And then how do you look at me? And that, that justified some of the racist acts that they would commit against me. Right. And so it was a very interesting space to navigate. And that was like years ago. And obviously, like cities look different and, and people migrate now differently to places. But being able to be one of the first or survive those environments was really interesting to say yeah. the least. Yeah. Years ago, but still obviously very impactful on your life and what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry for those experiences. That sounds, and I can see why you would want to get out very quickly and find your people in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Toronto's very much, very similar to Boston in the sense that it's got a lot of different West Indian and mm -hmm. Caribbean identities. Right. And so when you go to Toronto, you go to Boston, there isn't just one black at all. And for Boston in particular, when, when we look for black leadership and when we look to even like elect a black mayor, there are so many black identities that we then end up splitting and voting for multiple black people. And then we haven't had success in electing because there's no one black voice versus like if you were down south, you know, you're either you're either black, white, or they say Mexican and they kind of put all the Latino folks in as a Mexican. Yeah. But um, yeah, um, in, at least in rural areas is what I've been told um, from friends. But it's the diversity and culture is phenomenal mm -hmm. in the sense that like you learn so much about so many different cultures and you can find your Jamaican community yeah. in Toronto yeah. and you guys have like a huge Caribbean 
festival. Um, Caravana, you know, that was like, because I had the experience of going back and forth to Jamaica, like, obviously I was really in tune with my culture. Um, my mom was very, like, political. Um, so she always encouraged me to, like, be engaged in certain things. And, but, like, we couldn't go buy, like, Jamaican food. Like, <laughs> it wasn't until I moved to Toronto. I was like, what? You can, like, you have stores for this, right? It was, yeah. it was a very different, like, experience. But even moving to Toronto initially when I came, like, because I had grown up, around so many white people, like my blackness then was called into question. You know, I moved to Toronto and I kind of looked like a, a mixture of like, anybody who knows me from back in the day, like a mixture of like pre-Summers and Lisa Bonet. Like I had this very bohemian vibe and people were like, you don't wear North Face and Hallie Hansen and like, like no, like I like these Levi's corduroys with their bell bottoms and stuff like that. So. You know, really trying to, and I, and obviously, like I, I listened to a diverse range of music, um, yeah. because that's what I was able to have access to coming from where I was coming from, and so you know, it was really interesting even navigating that space of like being black, being too black, but not black enough. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I do. I went to prep school, and because I went to prep school, I wasn't black enough for my black friends in Boston. But I was never, obviously, never white enough for the white people that went to school there. Um, I spoke differently when I came back because I had learned how to speak differently. Mm -hmm. And then, so my code switching, you know, it got really, really good. Um, and I still, I mean, I code switch every every other minute here, like in my life now. But that's just that's reality. Yeah. It's kind of like where we are. So I definitely understand that. No, and I appreciate that. Like I appreciate that because all those. Those are the things like those are all the experiences that make us who we are. And then we have the, these conversations about like labels and intersectionality, like all these things shape who we become and who mm -hmm. we choose to become too as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And we can allow those experiences to like make us or break us. Right. Like I remember my oldest son, when he went away to prep school, it was so different for him because he was so used to being around. So he went to a really multicultural high school for a year. He had like very multicultural, like a really great group of multi, like his friends were all multicultural. And then he went to the space, this place in Maryland that was very white, like 15 minutes down the road from like plant, a clan, like clan headquarters. And, wow. you know, he had a very like rude awakening. Right. But, you know, you know, my conversations were around, like, you also have to understand like this is the other reality of the world that you're going to be navigating and like if you were going to pursue anything beyond prep school and go to a university you're going to be one of and the further up you go the less and less you see of us right so yeah. this will add another notch in terms of like resiliency and add to your strength and help build your character and you know i've managed to navigate those spaces so it was really great to be able to have those conversations when instances happened to him and he yeah. didn't know how to react. And it was easy to kind of like have those conversations with him too as well. So so you then picked up yoga at some point. Let's talk about your yoga journey. And so after high school and moving to Toronto, mm -hmm. did you do any university? Yeah, I went to university. Uh... I put that on pause because I had my son. And that's how I kind of like fell into yoga. I okay. will preface it with by saying that like I've always had an affinity to like alternative living, like natural living. You know, I grew up around like some Rastafarians, so I, you know, veganism and like liberty and all these kinds of things were just inherently part of like who I was as a person. And so, you know, I was always trying to explore ways that I could support myself in a holistic nature and manner, like, you know, rather than always utilizing conventional Western or traditional Western medicine or how we understand it to be, right? Um, <laughs> and back home, if you're sick, you know, it's not like you run to the doctor right away. You might go to a bush doctor and drink the tea and do different things um, before you actually like take a conventional route. So I was kind of like already kind of used to that. And um, for me, I had ventured into yoga as a way to, it was part of my birthing plan, essentially. Like I was having like a lot of anxiety around becoming a mother and feeling like a lot of pressure and you know um obviously i didn't think that i would end up pregnant <laughs> you know i came here for school i it was i had different plans and so <laughs> it was out of that need to kind of like create a sense of reassurance and connection to myself that i felt like i had lost and i was scared about 
giving birth to this being. And so that was just something that I decided to kind of like just wandered into a space and it was like a prenatal yoga program, but they were doing a lot of like meditation and visualizations. And so mm-hmm. because I like to draw and I'm very visual, it was like something that really resonated and connected with me. And so I did that to help supplement and support. It taught me how to breathe, which really came in handy when I started to go into labor and you know what I mean? So it taught me and visualize, like visualize this being coming out or see the finish line, you know, like all these things. So it really, I felt helped me prepare for becoming a mother and birthing and all that kind of stuff. And then I just decided at the end of it, like I was just going to continue to grow within the idea of the practice. And what resonated to me was like, you know, I always tell people like we always have these conversations and think yoga is just like the asana, which is like the postures, but the way of life in terms of like the other limbs of yoga, like there's eight limbs of yoga, like the other limbs of yoga in terms of like the practice of showing up in community, the practice of not causing harm, you know. And so it was something that also resonated to with me with regards to just a different way of showing up and living mm-hmm. to me because of how I was already navigating the spaces that I was, right? And so yoga for me wasn't just the practice of like the asana, which is the postures, but it became like in general, just an overall way of living and life. Um, how I wanted to treat others was how I expected to be treated back. Okay. So when you first got into yoga, who was doing yoga? How was it introduced to you? You mentioned that you were already a part of this alternative kind of life or a lifestyle thought process, but like who in the spaces, like, uh, were, who'd you see in these spaces? <laughs> I saw a bunch of white people <laughs> <laughs> who were in these spaces. That's a really good question. I didn't see anybody who looked like me. Right. And so that was the other thing. It was a practice that I adopted that I just typically associated with like white people. Um, you know, not even having an understanding of like yoga's African and um, South Asian roots in general, which later on I learned, right? But I just saw it as this practice that, you know, everybody in my class was like a, a white lady. On occasion, I would see a white man, but for the majority of the, the practice, that's what it was. And so, and then obviously culturally, Yoga was also seen something as like, hey, like you're practicing another person's culture or religion or spirituality and being West Indian, being from the Caribbean, the idea of it being, you're saying stuff or being affiliated with something that had multiple gods or deities and, you know, in the Caribbean in general, there's this understanding of like the erasure of the practices and the religions that we brought over with us when we came as slaves and they're always vilified. So, you know, my practice of yoga on some level was equated to like me practicing voodoo. And and so I was like in the closet about practicing for a while because I just didn't want to have those complicated conversations about why what I was doing was something that was so bad when it made me feel so good, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And so did you have these internal feelings about practicing and hiding it? Or did you even have any, before you got into it, did you, were there those hesitations or was it something that you knew you wanted to do, but you knew you also had to protect it? And I guess what I'm trying to ask is the thought of potentially being vilified for it or um, being treated a certain different way that caused you to be in the closet about it. Mm -hmm. How did you set those aside or like, how'd you manage those? I mean, you know, I also feel like, again, going back to like, before we started recording, we had this conversation of just about being authentic. Right. And so for me, I've always thought about like showing up in the truest expression of myself. So like, at 13, 14, I read like the autobiography of Michael Max and I decided to like become, I know I'm not eating pork and let me join the nation of Islam. And like, like, you know what I mean? So like I've done some pretty like interesting things along the way. And so for me, it then became a conversation about like, 
if I've always navigated these spaces my whole entire life where I've had to like minimize who I was, where I had to negotiate my identities based upon who I was in proximity to, then I'm always constantly like not being authentic to who I am and shrinking myself just to be able to fit in, in some cases just to survive, right? And so I just had like a breaking point where I was just like, I, this is what I do. This is what I like, right? I'm not trying to ram it down your throat and say, you need to come practice yoga and like chant and come up with all these mudras. Like this is something that really resonates with me. I think for some people in my family, they were like, oh, she's vegan. <laughs> like, so things like, duh, like, you know what I mean? And for some other people, they were like, oh my God, this is like bad. And like, you know, maybe it's a phase and she'll grow out of it. But, you know, I also feel that the practice has allowed me to show up as a better person and like even as a mother show up as a really like my kids can tell the days when i practice yoga from the days i haven't <laughs> they're like hey. that's great <laughs> right and so i feel like the benefits you know i think people started to see the benefits showing up for me okay. and then it provided me a space to have legitimate conversations that allowed me to address some of their concerns, challenges, and ignorances that they might have had towards the practice itself, which was really great. So how long into, into your yoga journey did you decide to teach yoga or become an instructor? Or I don't know how it, if you make that conscious decision or if you've done it for so long that people are then starting to want you to show them how to do it or... Well, Tell me about that process. It was like a really interesting combination of a couple of things. So there was like a yoga studio that opened up near my house and mm -hmm. I would go there because it's like, it was right across, like there's no excuses. Like I had struggled with my relationship with yoga for a very long time because I was the only person of color that was in spaces. I would get super excited once or twice I had another woman of color teach me within the practice. But for the most part, like it was predominantly white women. And there's a lady who owned the studio and she was just like, you know, you should still work on cultivating this practice. So because wellness and yoga are no exceptions, like everybody wants to say love and light, but stuff happens in this yoga studio that's no different than stuff happening outside in the real world, right? Like you're not immune to that. And so like microaggressions would really like show up in the spaces that I would practice. So for a while I stopped going to studio and I would just practice at home. But there was a yoga studio that opened up across the street from my, my house. Um, my mother had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and um, my mother had been, had my mom had cancer since I was 12. And so I spent a lot of my life navigating a space of seeing my mother go through the challenges of what being sick and chemo and all those things. And so when my mother got diagnosed with brain cancer, you know, I understood that was inevitable that she was going to pass. Mm -hmm. And so I needed an outlet that was healthy. And so I reverted back to the one thing that I knew I could control in terms of my yoga practice. And that was the one place that I felt safe and I could go to my mat and it didn't matter what I looked like or how I showed up, like I could just be accepted as is. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself going to this yoga studio and I had this teacher, this white guy, Alex, who used to always tell me like, you should be a yoga teacher. You should be a yoga teacher. I was like, yeah, whatever, right? Like, <laughs> let me just do this restorative class, fall asleep for 20 minutes and I'll holler at you next week kind of thing, right? Right. And he's like, no, I really think you should. And like, he always say like, I had a nice voice and like, you know, you always have these really like interesting things and observations and you would be like a really cool teacher. And I'd be like, mm, whatever. And I, my background is community development and engagement. And so I did a lot of like placemaking projects in the city and in the Caribbean as well. And so, I actually was working in community and I started incorporating elements of my yoga practice with the youth that I was working with. And it was showing up in ways that was really interesting because instead of like fighting, they were breathing or getting angry, they would count to 10. 
and all these kinds of things. And then we were doing like all these yoga poses, but you know, there was a sense of accomplishment and just like, and so I was creating a community space and I thought that like, I would just bring in a yoga program just because we needed slots to fill and I practiced and, you know, and if I showed community partners, maybe more community partners can could, would have come in. And so that's essentially yeah. what happened. And then we had an incident where there was like a, a police raid in the community and it was really bad. And we just gathered and we started to just breathe, right? Like yeah. having conversations with the youth and the children about like, breathing and and holding space for ourselves in a way especially after a moment that robbed us all of our dignity if that made sense mm -hmm. and so from there i just had parents come up to me and say like whatever you're doing with my child can you help me learn and i was like wow. oh i'm not a yoga teacher it's just like i got my yoga certification for children just because i like to teach yoga to my kids and my kids were yeah. also part of the after school program because I believe in like, just because you work in community doesn't mean that you don't extend yourself beyond that. And so my kids participated in the same projects. They came to work with me like literally every day, right? Um, because it was really important, important for me to not create hierarchy within the systems that I was creating. And so my children were part of the after school program and they would practice yoga and pranayama, like breathing and all these kinds of things and meditate. So other kids saw them and that's kind of like how the program grew. And yeah. when the parents started approaching me, then I was like, I went back to Alex and I was just like, Hey, like people are asking me to like teach yoga. And he was like, yeah, that's what I've been saying. You should be a yoga teacher. And, <laughs> and then it's like the universe and God heard they're like, Oh, so said, so done. And then there was like an opportunity to apply for a scholarship. And then I was like, I'm just going to apply just for the fun of it. Like, you know, you play, you know, you dabble around with like fate. Just yeah, yeah. it out. And I was like, I'm going to apply for it. I probably won't get it. And then I got it. Then I was like, damn, like, what am I going to do now? Like, I got this opportunity. And then I was like, oh, there's no way. Like, it was like a month intensive. So I had to take a month off work. And I was like, there's no way my boss is going to allow me to take a month off work. Like, I'm in the middle of this big project. And there was like millions of dollars that was invested in creating this space. And then, so I just went to my boss and said, Hey, like I got this opportunity to do this yoga teacher training. I, I know you're going to say no, but I just thought I'd just let you know. And she's like, Oh, that'd be really cool. And she gave me a month off work. And I was like, <laughs> so I came up with reasons of why I couldn't do it. Cause I was like, Hey, like have your kids and you guys want people to start at like eight o'clock in the morning. And you know, it's a lot of responsibility. And they were like, Oh, we'll make it work. And so there was no excuse for me. Like, that's why I'm saying like when like the universe and like God shows up in your life to fulfill a purpose, like your purpose is to continue on this path, no matter how you resist it, you're going to find reasons that it's going to show up and like hit you and hit you and hit you until you say, okay, forget about it. I'm going to follow this path. And that's essentially how I became a teacher. And yeah, like it just serendipitously, like all the pieces fell into place based upon like these conversations about the fact that like this space needs people like you to show up because that's the only yeah. way that it's going to change right what i love about this is that you made a conscious effort to bring yourself to the mat because you know you needed it for yourself and then it manifested itself in the way that you were helping other students and kids and i love that, that you that that's how it started because just the act of breathing, yeah. just taking a breath clears your mind. Mm -hmm. And so much so that we're using it with our two-year-old now mm -hmm. where like, instead of saying, go to timeout, stop doing this. It's like, breathe. Mm -hmm. And he just starts breathing. Yep. And so teaching them, teaching kids at a young age, just how to just breathe and calm and use that as a calming mechanism um, is so important. And I think it's super, it's needed in our communities because our kids are over policed, our kids are over over disciplined, mm -hmm. our kids are our kids are suspended at a higher rate. Police, especially in America, I'm not sure how it is in Canada. I'm sure it's pretty yeah. similar, but <laughs> you know. And so, helping our kids learn how to manage that at an early age, I think, is important. So I, I love that, mm -hmm. and, and the way that it just kind of naturally happened because you were doing something that 
that was true to you. Yeah, and I really think that's really important what you said, Sid, just to really like touch upon is the fact that like, as black people, as people of color, right? We don't get the space to breathe like everybody else, right? Yeah. We're always busy holding our breath, right? And so the yeah. ability for us to be able to harness and anchor into our breath and on some levels reclaim that breath is is very political. It's an act of resistance and it and it teaches us a different way of not only connecting to ourselves, but showing up for ourselves um, in ways. And so like, you know, now that your son is two and you're teaching him how to breathe, you know, that breath is just only gonna become more powerful and powerful the older he gets. And so that's, and that's a practice that you can just hand off and pass on, right? And as people of color, and especially as black people with a shared collective history of like, especially for those of us in the diaspora, like of slavery, we have inherited traumas that whether we want to talk about it have been passed down generationally too as well mm -hmm. right and so mm -hmm. we're inherently predisposed via our dna not to breathe properly because we're so busy yeah. like right and so just to be able to anchor into something like your breath and allowing it to you know your breath changes when you get angry your breath changes when you get sad your breath changes when you get happy right allows us to learn a lot about ourselves and the different ways that we can show up for ourselves. I'm channeling my breath a lot more these days. Yeah. I need it. <laughs> I absolutely need it. Um, and it's, it's, it's been working wonders. So you get this opportunity, you complete it, even though you had a ton of excuses, yep. the universe. And I appreciate using the way you use God and the universe. Cause not everyone mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, believes in God. And I'm very much a proponent of the universe. Mm -hmm. So I love the way that you do that. So thank you. But, you know, something was pushing you towards this calling of yours. Mm -hmm. And then so once you got certified, what was the journey from there to becoming the first black woman <laughs> to be the Nike trainer in Canada? It was which years. That was years. But, it's you know, in my yoga teacher training, that was, it was really triggering. A lot of things mm -hmm. were said. It wasn't exactly the safest container for anybody who was a person of color. Like, I mean, they tried, um, but you know, I had a discussion about the fact that I wanted to play hip hop in my yoga classes because that's what was culturally like reggae music, like things that are inherently indigenous to who I am as a person and how I show up resonate with me. Um, and it was in that, in that teacher training that I had made a conscientious decision to be in community with my community. My mother, she was a single parent. She didn't have, like we do wellness in the sense of like, when she was upset, we'd go for walks and walk around the block and she'd like bent, bent, bent. And then when she was down, we'd go inside. But she didn't yeah. really have a practice to like anchor into. And, you know, like traditionally, your parents are their old school. Prayer is the anchor for a lot of us. And so I just felt like, if this was a tool that was beneficial for me, and I emphasize the word tool, doesn't mean that it's the right tool for you, but it was a tool that benefited me, then why not bring that into community? And I had that juxtaposition of working in community where I was creating space and writing grants and creating really interesting, innovative programs that were kind of like surface level, but weren't in necessarily addressing like our wellness and our well-being and ways to be able to kind of like cope with the politics of an ident and the identity of our politics and how we're seen, how we show up, right? Like we're talking about a society that systemically has oppressed people, right? Um, and so, you know, that is not immune in wellness and health and fitness at all, right? And so I heard these things in teacher training and I was just like, whatever. And then I had created this class where it was, I called it grand groundation. So like in Rastafarian culture, there's this um, thing practiced Naya Bingi, right? And like, it's like groundings with your brother. Okay. And then I looked at like the chakra system and the root chakra is grounding. And so I, I created this reggae yoga class and everybody was like, oh my God, this is like really bad. And I was just like, this is like lit. And everybody came <laughs> right. like white people 
And I was like super disappointed because I was I wanted black people to come. I wanted people who were Jamaican to show up. You know what I mean? And then I realized yeah. that the reason why they didn't come was because the space wasn't accessible to them and they couldn't see themselves. So no matter how many yeah. comedic yoga poses I threw in there, no matter how many reggae and dub beats I had in there and quotes from Bob Marley and, you know, Carl James and all these people, like it didn't matter because it wasn't something that was a practice that they saw themselves reflected in. And so right mm -hmm. there in that, the combination of me like doing that as part of my practicum and then the combination of just hearing microaggressions throughout my whole entire teacher training made me decide that I was going to teach only people of color, you know, which mm. a lot of friends and family were like, you're not going to make money and, you know, why? And I'm like, the fact that we're having this conversation and you're saying these, these things is the reason why, right? Because why aren't we afforded the same, I wouldn't say luxuries, but amenities as everybody else, right? And so why do we look at the idea of being able to show up for ourselves as something that's only reserved to someone who's privileged and who has the ability to access, right? Why can't I go into my community and teach people how to connect to the breath? And it doesn't have to be in a yoga studio. It can be in a hair salon. It can be in a barbershop. When I first started, I started teaching in hair salons, barbershops, basketball courts. I met my community where they're at because as a community practitioner, you meet people where they're at and you show them the tools that you feel will help. And it's up to them to kind of like carry it on. And so, you know, my conversations then sh shifted to I'm creating the space to having this space where black women would come and women of color would come. Um, and also non-binary people would come and show up into that. I, I had a space that was really safe for people to just come and exist no matter mm -hmm. what and who they were. And no one questioned, but we created a community where people could talk about like today, like my boss said some stuff to me and I'm glad I'm here on the mat because I get to like breathe it out. And, yeah. you know, creating a space where if all you wanted to do is come and lie in Shavasana the whole entire time, I'm not going to stop you because that's what you need, right? I'm not going to lock the door because you were 15 minutes late because you made the effort to get here, right? And sometimes time, which is a, you know, colonial social construct, is something that never works on, on our behalf anyways as people of color, right? So You're hitting all of it. You're hitting all of it. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm getting chills because, I mean... You have create you were creating a practice that really, really resonates and meets our people where they mm -hmm. are. And I talk about this a lot because at least when I think about what we're doing in my running in our running team, it's like, yes, we've created the space. Are we and we're struggling to find the people we're looking to create for? And that's because we need to meet them where they yeah. are. We don't have the luxury of pulling up to a bar at 730 at night to meet for a run right. because there are other things going on in our lives. Mm -hmm. And the concept of time, the way that you just said that, and I hadn't thought about that before, mm -hmm. um, but it's so true. Like, you don't have the luxury of always having extra time to be able to make time for mm -hmm. yourself. And so, whatever time you are, whatever time you are giving, and if you're putting your best effort forward, I love that you're not excluding those no. folks. Because I've also been on the other end of like, you know, my mom was. I had I had two children in the age of three. My mom was dying. And I'd rush to go to a yoga class and get there like five minutes and they'd lock me out and I'd like literally sit in the parking lot crying because I needed to be in that class. And I never wanted to give someone that experience, right? And so for me, it was really important to kind of like, you know, as someone who believes in the power of community, um, because like, you know, in wellness, it's the collective we, right? And all these practices that we practice, whether it be yoga, whether it be running, <laughs> whether it be like Reiki, like all these different modalities are indigenously like inherent to who we are, the essence, right? They were created by people of color, essentially, right? With that idea of collectivity and collectivism. I'm not trying to center the individual. Even for a long time on my social media account, I didn't even put pictures of myself. It was about the community, right? It was about you coming to class and I caught you in a really cool pose and I talk about it, right? Um, because it wasn't about me. It was about the idea of 
cultivating space for us to be in community with each other. And that was really important. And so essentially it just kind of like grew from me practicing in community to like getting a space. And, you know, I struggled around having a space and I've talked about the story about, you know, emailing like a whole bunch of studios in Toronto to host an event that I was having and nobody got back to me. And, you know, it was because I was really clear on the fact that I was holding space for 20 women of color. And one studio got back to me and said like, how did you get 20 women of color? And I was like, can I rent your spot or not? It's not a question of how I got them. The fact that I got them is none of your business. I have the money to pay. Can I rent your spot? And she never responded. Right. And so like, you know, I ended up renting a space from, um, a South Asian uh, woman who is married to a Jamaican man. And that's where I've okay. been holding space for community ever since. And it was really interesting because she was another woman of color supporting me as a woman of color. And, yeah. um, you know, just providing a platform for people to be able to come. You don't have to worry about having a yoga mat, props. I provide all of that tea. If you can't afford to pay, I don't care. I just want you to come and center yourself and pour into yourself. Because I always feel like all those little details will work out. I grew up in a, a single parent family home and my mom didn't necessarily have the means to be able to take care of herself the way that she wanted to take care of herself. That doesn't exclude yeah. her from the right to be able to be well or take care of herself, right? If you don't have the money, mm -hmm. that's, that, that shouldn't stop someone from being able to access something that makes them feel better allows them to take care of themselves, allows them to heal and, you know, support their mental health and well-being, support their physical health and well-being. There's like so many variables. Like we can have these conversations about eating healthy and like running and like yoga, but if we're not making these means accessible, then, then they're just kind of like pointless conversations to have, right? Because we need to Absolutely. look at the systems and the barriers that are in place to stop people that look like you and me from being able to be a part of the process to begin with. And you hit it. I think you hit it uh, very succinctly there that the accessibility component is where we need to focus a lot of, because there's a lot of action around creating, well, there's more action around creating and having it available than the, um, like actually addressing the accessibility because there are also the, like, class aspects to it like yes we're people of color but then you fall into separate classes mm -hmm. and then it's harder to reach the folks on the lower class because they have a lot more issues with accessibility than the folks who fall in the middle middle class you know fully employed and and have more time on their hands mm -hmm. and so that is something i'm thinking more of as we grow our grow our platform of of um of what we're doing for sure i spend a lot of time like really dissecting the privileges that i have in terms of like mm -hmm. yes i'm a woman of color i'm a black woman and I have many different intersectionalities, but I also, I mean, I'm university educated. I lived in a very nice neighborhood. I had a job that afforded me to take a month off work. <laughs> you know, I had a, yeah. a partner who was able to help me take care of my children so that I could do the training. Like I had all these things which are privileges, right? And so, you know, I think it's really important for us when we're doing this work to even acknowledge the privilege that we all, I have the privilege of being able to tone switch code switch, right? Absolutely. Like not everybody has that privilege to be able to do that safely. Yeah. Right. And so like, you know, really acknowledging the privileges that I also had in order to create space and understand that when I was trying to create space, if there was resistance, like really meeting that and unpacking that so that I could address it in a way that was, that meant that people were being seen and heard. And so like, really being like, hey, I want to do this, but maybe the time isn't, like, I want to have this yoga class for women of color, but if the majority of my clients are single moms, like, maybe I need to think about providing childcare so that they can come to class, you know what I mean? And so really just kind of like dissecting the work that I'm, I'm doing and really, again, that whole idea of like meeting community at where they're at is a tenant of like making your stuff accessible. And so, yeah, I just kind of like, it just grew and it took seven years, it wasn't overnight. And then I co-hosted an event and met some people from Nike and I, I wasn't really paying any attention to that. It was just like, hey, cool, you work at Nike, I can get a discount, like legit, that's what I 
seriously though for real though i'm all What's about up? the hookup trust me i'm like okay you get a 50 percent off discount on chris like you know what i mean like um oh, yeah. so i wasn't really paying any mind and then like you know conversations were just about like we really like the way that you're showing up and we really like you know the conversations that you're having in community about representation and all these kinds of things and like you know my work centers around like people of color but it also centers around just marginalized groups in general. Wellness and yoga in particular has like this aesthetic of a cisgendered, you know, size two, blonde haired, blue eyed, able bodied, fit person, right? And if you don't fit within the parameters of that look, right? If you're, you know, um, fuller sized or if you're, you know, short or, you know, not maybe as flexible or able bodied as other people, does that mean that? you can't be a part of like that conversation of what like wellness looks like about what taking care of yourself looks like about what diversity is so for me it was not just about centering like black people and people of color in general but it was just really like looking at the fact of how we're all showing up in the world and finding the many different ways for us to be able to create space for ourselves and so i i just it just was like it was like it was again one of those weird i'm not gonna lie i tell this to people and people think i'm lying but i do vision boards with my children every year at the beginning of the year and i actually put nike in the middle of one of my vision boards and i created this one about like how i wanted to create space for women of color like it was all fully like blah, blah, blah. And i put nike in the middle and so i was laughed because i put it there just because i thought it was really cool I didn't necessarily think that it again, but then it's like the universe and God was like, oh, for real, you want that? Boom. <laughs> now right. what are you going to do with it? Right. And so what, what has been really neat, especially within the opportunity with Nike is it allows me to kind of like show up in community the way that I can. Um, mm -hmm. They allow me to still use the voice that I have and I get to have access to resources that I get to then share with community in a way that I might not necessarily have. And then again, like, I don't look like your typical yoga teacher, right? Um, and so it's really nice to be able to be that person that people can look at and see themselves being reflected, you know what I mean, back at them yeah. as making something such as this practice, like really accessible to them too as well. So I'm happy about yeah. That. Yes. I mean, I got into yoga four or five years ago and I was not flexible. Yeah. I didn't move as quick. I didn't have the perfect poses. And at first I was actually doing it with Nike <laughs> and it was just not my thing because I just didn't, not that only that I didn't have people that would look like me. I also didn't look when I was doing my poses, I didn't look like anyone else doing their poses. Mm. And so, uh, I wish, I, I stuck with it for longer, but then I discovered a new yoga studio in my neighborhood that had people who taught differently. Mm -hmm. And, and I fell in love with certain practices and just because it, I don't want to say I, I got better at it. I probably did get better at it, but I just got more comfortable with the way of, of that people were teaching and there were black teachers, mm -hmm. um, there were, you know, black women, women of color teachers and the music portion. It's just like the flow of how yoga was practiced that really became that really like pulled me in and so thank you for creating that because you know you're you're one of a you know one of a few who who uh who actually do that well at least from what i've seen in the past before um and what actually drew me into yoga period was was kind of the the spaces that you've created in in your kind of in your journey yeah and so. i and I, I think it's really interesting because i have the luxury of being able to look back over the last 20 years right from being like i mean being the only woman of color in a space to like last february pre-covid hosting a yoga event with nike for 30 women of like black women for black history month with nicole cardoza who would have ever thought right. that like you know what I mean? having some really and having a really great conversation about resilience and strength and showing up and not shrinking ourselves with a whole bunch of black women for some of them in that room that was the first time they even got to practice with other black women and so it's really like an honor and i don't take it for granted to be able to cultivate the spaces and, and I'm not going to say that it hasn't been without struggle because it is. And 
I've been called some stuff, but like I said, my upbringing brought me, <laughs> like helped me understand, oh, you're just another troll, delete, like, you know what I mean? Or like these weird e emails and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I feel like my upbringing really prepared me for those kinds of conversations. But I think, you know, it's really important for us to be able to find ways to create the spaces that are needed for us to think about what like not just embodied practices are, but like collective healing can and should look like. Mm -hmm. And the more we focus on that, you know, I'm not saying it's going to solve all the world's problems, but it allows us to show up differently than we currently are. So where are, uh, what's, what are you doing now that the pandemic is in full fledged? Hopefully we're getting towards the end. How are you, how'd you transition your practice? And I know we had hosted and planned to host more mm -hmm breathing and guided meditation on clubhouse how have you used technology to you know do do your thing during this time what has been really interesting is like when the pandemic hit i was like holy crap what am i gonna do so it uh, allowed me and people who know me i'm always like it could be worse there must be a silver lining my friends are like you were like annoyingly optimistic um I always try to find like the bright side to everything. And so, you know, I looked at it as an opportunity for me to show up differently. Um, so it did open up the opportunity for me to like practice with people from like all around the world who would never been able to come to my classes in Toronto. And, and I'm really clear, like, I don't even, pra I don't even practice downtown. I practice in like Scarborough, which is like, depending on who you talk to, like not a neighborhood that people want to come to. Right. So like, I'm very clear about where I'm holding space and, um, um, it's intentionally purpose because there's not a lot of wellness spaces and yoga studios. I think there's one other yoga studio in Scarborough, unless you go to like temple because we have a large South Asian population. So there's temple and I've also practiced and taught yoga in temple, but you know, mm -hmm. for the most part, the pandemic had really allowed me to kind of like tap into additional skill sets. By the time like this airs, I had to stay, take a step back from teaching because I had some health issues that you know i had to have like surgery and it didn't go well <laughs> so i had to go back two other times to make it right but that also allowed me to anchor in more into like my meditation practice and being able to hold mm -hmm. space for meditation for the community so right now i am doing like a lot of meditations i do a lot of meditations for like um, nike in particular which is really really cool because it's really interesting to see a brand like that kind of look at wellness differently than what it did, right? And so it's really interesting, you know, everybody's an athlete. And so my conversations mm -hmm. look at and exploring, especially through like meditations, like how are we nurturing our inner athlete? How are we providing space mm -hmm. for us to like connect to our breath? So that has been really great for me to be able to kind of like tap in and hone in and honor those pieces. And I'm really excited about like what those opportunities mean and what they look like. Obviously, I'm going to be returning to teaching probably in the spring, like March. That's like the trajectory. Yeah. But again, the pandemic allowed me to really also find time to like write as well as like amplify like other teachers. Mm -hmm. I'm the co-founder of organization up here called like the Well Collective, where we center and about shifting the narrative of what wellness looks like and decolonization of wellness in particular. And so it allowed me the opportunity to kind of like focus on really um, having really cool conversations through that initiative and project and centering really cool BIPOC practitioners and experts and community to have like really important conversations. We had a conversation on anti-blackness. We had a conversation and panel on privilege. We're organizing one currently around food and food sovereignty and food justice, especially as it pertains mm -hmm. to black indigenous communities in particular and communities of color. You know, like I said one time, like you can't talk to me about eating healthy if there's no whole foods in the hood, right? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like, try, like you know what i mean because then again it goes back to the whole idea of like who has access to what right like right um so i'm really excited about like the future projects that i'll be working on through like the well collective and in particular through like stuff initiatives that i'm going to be working around like really examining and having um conversations about 
our well-being and healing as Black women too in particular. Mm -hmm. And then also reproductive health because my surgery kind of like focused a lot on my reproductive health. And, you know, Black women in particular have a very precarious relationship around reproductive health and a very precarious relationship of navigating the health system in general, of which I experienced the good sides and the bad sides. So really like cultivating and a space for, for those kinds of conversations to kind of like unfold in, in the next few weeks and months. So. I remember when we were having our, our son, Sebastian, our birth plan was keep my wife alive, yeah. advocate for mm-hmm. her, make sure she advocate for herself, mm-hmm. make sure that that was the birth yeah. plan, keep her alive because we had read the stories. We had seen this, we we've seen the statistics, even Sarita Williams yeah. had issues and she's, you know, not only is she famous and rich, but she's well-respected. And and for her to go through those issues just kind of shows mm-hmm. you that we're still black people, no matter you know, what the Kanye say. Um, you could be a black dude in the bands, but you're, you're still, still black. Yeah. You're still black. Like, you're still, you know what? Yeah. It was really interesting because when I had my son, my oldest, I, I never realized the, like, I had hemorrhaged when I was giving birth to him, right? And so that whole idea of keeping your wife alive. And, you know, I probably looked like I was 12 going into like the delivery room. And I heard nurses talk about me being a statistic and all these like crazy things. And I literally like almost died giving birth to him, right? And that's when I understood because my whole entire pregnancy, I was just like, something doesn't feel right. I'm in a lot of pain and all these kinds of things. And then, you know, after I hemorrhaged and people realized I had fibroids. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, I feel like, and thankfully I advocated enough for myself that I was able to switch to a different doctor who really, I mean, she's still my family doctor to this day who, who really understood, but that didn't make me immune to the fact that 20 years later, I still had issues around my reproductive health, around fibroids, around tumor, around cancer, like all these things. And, and how I had to still do a lot of advocacy just to be able to get treatment, just for someone to take me seriously. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. there was this preconceived notion that like, because I'm a black woman, like I'm super strong and I could handle all the stuff that I was going through. There was this preconceived notion and understanding that it was like all in my head. You know, I just, you know, magically made up these stomach aches every single month. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just couldn't handle the pain and was like, no, it's legitimate. There's something wrong. And it took months and months and months of just self-advocacy. And I'm comfortable with advocating for myself, but I just think of like all the other Black women and women of color who are in the exact same position as me, who don't feel comfortable pushing the envelope, right? Like it literally took me going into a walk-in clinic and sitting there and telling the doctor, like, I'm not moving because something's not right. And you are going to do every single test under the sun to figure out what's wrong with me because something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of hearing you guys tell me that nothing is. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he did an examination. He's like, oh, your uterus feels bulky. And I'm like, okay. Can we do a little bit more than just telling me that my uterus feels bulky is a reason why? And then, you know, we did um, some tests and finally, you know, they, from for months I've been advocating for like a transvaginal exam and they actually listened to me that one time. And that's when they found like, I had like a tumor that was 10 centimeters in diameter growing on the backside of my uterus. So not frontwards mm. growing into me. So when I was coming into the hospital or going into the clinics or saying that I was in pain and people were like, well, they would do an ultrasound on my belly. They wouldn't see it because it was (laughs) on the other side, right? For me to be like, you know, that was a moment in my life where, of course, I was really sad because that's not news that I wanted to hear. But at the same time, I felt very vindicated because it was like, hey, I've been telling you that something was wrong. Like, I know my body. And. And being able to practice like yoga and connect to my breath and all these different things has allowed me to really understand my body. And I have friends who are like amazing practitioners that I go to for like, I can get anything that I want at my disposal. Right. And so like, 
for them to even validate the fact that like, hey, you're doing all these things. I was drinking my red raspberry leaf tea, dandelion root, doing everything and something still wasn't right. You know what I mean? Yeah. To be able to be in that position. But then it made me think of like all these other black women in particular and then women of color who aren't in that position to be able to force that agenda or who are too afraid to like go make demands at the doctor's office to be like, something's wrong. You, got, you guys better fix this because I can't live like this anymore. Right. And so, yeah. you know, I would look forward to kind of like digging deeper into like those conversations, because again, we're talking about accessibility. We also need to have like these conversations that are really important to, in order to create the shifts and changes that we need to see. Very important. Uh, one of the tricks that my wife uses is when something comes up, she goes to the doctor and says, this has been happening for three weeks. But they'll be like, how many times has it happened? If she could have been one time, she'll be like, this, but this has happened for a month now. And I feel every, you know, just because she's learned that they don't take her seriously if it didn't happen for X amount of time. And then I remember the first time I started going to the doctors with her and it was, we went, I went to every appointment for Sebastian before he was born. And I would step in and be like, oh, I think you only felt it once. She'd be like, shut up. <laughs> you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> she would tell me the place, but she would tell me after. I'm like, yeah, you're right. right I'm sorry. Right. Uh, so, so I love that. But um, so important. Rebecca, thank you so much. Um, this this has been phenomenal. I, I expected a good conversation, but this was, I guess, even better. better, better if better. you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a quick review. This helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. That wraps up today's show. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode.